0: This is the Design Goggles podcast on BNV Radio. Checking out architecture and design is a pretty good way to keep track of how the world changes. Designers have a unique way of looking at cities and Seattle is a city that's changing fast. More people are moving here every day and understanding what's different and what's next has never been more important. So, put on your design goggles and join us in checking out the view. I'm Charles. I'm a designer here at Borden Vellum. I live in the Central District neighborhood, and I've been a Seattleite for two years.
1: And I'm Rachel. I'm a designer here at Borden Vellum. I live in the Old Ballard neighborhood, and I grew up here in Seattle.
0: This week's show is titled The Seattle Retail Experience. When people from all across the state think of Seattle, sure, they think of beautiful mountains and drizzly rain, but there are some pretty big retail company names that come to mind as well but ask any Seattleite and they'll tell you there's far more to the Seattle retail experience than on-demand books and a quick cup of coffee. Seattleites collect and shop and buy uniquely, and in a lot of ways you can experience with a quick stroll through Pike Place Market. How have Seattle's retail experiences evolved since this new economic boom? Are Seattleites dictating the experiences they want or are retailers telling us what we need? How are newcomers to Seattle forming and shaping the retail experience we all have? To help us answer that question and more, you're joined by Chris Guillaume, who is a retail consultant and designer here in Seattle. Chris, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. One of the first things we do is we ask all of our guests uh, how long have they been in Seattle, where they grew up?
2: I've been in Seattle since July 2006, about nine years longer than I thought I'd be in Seattle.
0: What was the original plan?
2: Two to three years tops with the mental mindset that I could do anything for five years.
1: So you're saying you're putting a timeline on your Seattle experience?
2: I did. And about three years in, I was itching to move. But Seattle sneaks up on you in a way that's subtle and in a way that's easy. And so I didn't fall in love with it right away. I really grew into it and settled in.
0: Where did you grow up?
2: I grew up in Southern California. I was born and raised in LA. And that's funny to say that because I'm not that kind of person. When I go back to LA, I feel very out of place, but I left. As soon as I became college age, I moved around a lot. My parents were very forward thinking about real estate. They would buy a house, remodel it, squeeze out the equity, buy another house. We did that a lot. And I moved around the South Bay area, beach cities. So when I would go to school, it would be a backpack and a beach chair under my arm. Mm
1: -hmm. And
2: I would do homework on the beach. That's what I knew and how I grew up.
1: That sounds terrible. It was the worst. I'm so
0: sorry.
2: To watch sunsets with 7-Eleven tacos. <laughs> <laughs> almost five days a week. Yeah. Oh, tacos.
0: Did California only feel out of place when you went back? Or was it like even when you were young, you knew like, this is not the place for me. I need to be elsewhere.
2: LA feels out of place. Mm-hmm. And because Southern California is so big, and when people say they're from LA, it can mean almost anything. And when I think through professional Chris and LA, I've was never going to fit. I could fit in cool, chill, Southern California beach cities, but I think I'm far too nonsensical to fit in there either. (laughs) But I love it. It's beautiful. And I like to visit.
0: But you didn't come directly to Seattle after California.
2: No, I had a long journey. (laughs) I moved to the East Coast when I went to college and I wasn't exactly sure what I was looking for other than, What is the furthest I can go from Los Angeles? And I ended up in a very, very tiny suburban town outside of Boston, Wellesley, Massachusetts. And it's known for its women's college, but I didn't even go to the women's college. I went to a much smaller entrepreneurship college, rolling hills, very green and lots of snow. And environmentally, it was such a huge shock. I didn't know what layers meant. (laughs) When you think of LA and Ugg boots, it's the tank top with a bad jacket. And it was tough for me from a environmental shift. But also the college was so small and I knew that's what I wanted to study, but I didn't want to be just with people like me. And after about nine months, I decided it wasn't for me. Between moving a lot as a kid and making that first big change, it would set the pace for the rest of my moves. And so I moved a lot. I went to Washington, D.C. I lived in Georgetown for about three years. Absolutely loved it. I was very singularly focused after year three to move to California and work in San Francisco and could have been there forever. And some life things happened that took me to Chicago. Ah, life. Ah, life. (laughs) And I learned so much about what I don't like. And I moved back to San Francisco. Now, the reason I came to Seattle was San Francisco was getting cost prohibitive, and you had to keep up with the Joneses in a variety of ways. The demands on your checking account just to live there meant you couldn't do a lot of things that you wanted to do. And so if we stayed, it meant that we were locked in on career paths. And as someone who likes to move a lot, as someone who's really creative and likes to pursue experimental projects, that traditional type of professional grooming and being really grounded in one place was never going to be for me. And we were very thoughtful about moving to Seattle. It came out of nowhere. We were visiting friends. I never once thought about even coming to visit Seattle. And then we fell in love with it in the most rational way possible. So we were quite methodical, secretive even. Let's come up. Let's not tell anyone. Let's make sure that there's a great job market for me. There's a great job market for my husband. We can imagine living here. And so with lots of rigor, we studied the city and then decided to move.
0: What were the challenges of adapting? You'd moved around a bunch, so you'd already had to adapt East Coast, West Coast, Midwest. But even just the adaptation from a place like Boston to D.C., those places couldn't be more different. I can't imagine the kind of cultural pivoting you must have had to have done every single city and then ending up in Seattle.
2: In Massachusetts and in Washington, D.C., when you're in an academic setting, it is highly diverse, right? That's true. highly inclusive, and you're with a different peer group, mm-hmm. totally unique. And you can find that in a lot of cities throughout the U.S. Mm-hmm. When you're a professional and you, you're not surrounded by academia, a lot of characteristics about the city come to life. Right. And you either vibe with it or you don't. And when I moved to Seattle, I had found it to be not very inclusive and not diverse. And we moved to Ballard. We had lived in Ballard for 11 years and that was part of where we decided to move. And so we were making some intentional choices about where we would work, where we would send our oldest to school, what we would be advocating for. And I did not realize I like this mix of more metropolitan than cosmopolitan. It's just easier for me to let my guard down. Right, Yeah. For sure. I am not the most friendly when my guard needs to be up and I can do it and I can do a cosmopolitan city, but I'm just not my personality.
0: It's funny. I was going to say there's no, I lived in DC for a little while and there's no city. I think more that requires you to have your guard up like DC. Uh, What uh, what must that have been like? (laughs) Was it just a ton of work?
2: It was a ton of work. I think people are very vocal in Washington, DC, and they will say their mind as you're walking up and down the street. I think it's part of this advocacy lobbying mentality, but it's not always meant to push anything forward other than I'm going to say a comment at you and it's going to be really uncomfortable. And so I would walk around and a lot of those kinds of things would happen to me. So I found myself among a group of women that would self-advocate. There's that. But the other piece was I chose to work in a nonprofit setting. I chose to work with community-based organizations in Northeast D.C. And it was very difficult for me to physically get to work. Sometimes cab drivers wouldn't drive me because they were worried for my safety. Mm -hmm. Do you know where you're going? Absolutely. And I'm late for work. (laughs) (laughs) I was able to work through some of those challenges, make my way to work and home from work safely. Mm -hmm. But it posed a lot of questions for me in terms of, um, what's my professional passion? How do I want to use my advocating voice? And is this really the right place for me? And so ultimately, I got burnt out in Washington, D.C., fully burnt out. Oh, it happens fast. Yeah. And I needed to go into the nest that is corporate retail.
0: And that's where you were when you got here? Still in the, the retail nest? Already in the retail nest, rather?
2: Already in the retail nest, the journey has been quite interesting. With all of the moves, it makes moving from organization to organization and within organizations pretty challenging. What worked for me is that retail moves quickly and the industry is small. But there were just a few cities where the opportunities weren't as obvious. The roles I took were kind of obscure. And when we moved here, I knew I wanted to stay in retail and then I wanted to try something new. So I was specifically looking to work for an organization that was small with a Seattle heritage and ideally a startup. And there's plenty of that in yeah. Seattle. So it was, it was cool. really easy mm-hmm. for me to land here from San Francisco and find a job that was going to be right
0: for me. So how much of a Delta was there between that moment and starting Merchant Method?
2: A big Delta. (laughs) So that's a great, yes, that's a good question. There was a big Delta. I lived in San Francisco twice. And the second time I was in San Francisco, I went to work for the exact same company, largely in the same type of role. And as I was thinking about starting a family, it became very clear that I needed to think about not just the glass ceiling, but the maternal wall. And how do I start to craft my career and my choices around that? Number one. And number two, was I even built to make those sacrifices? No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh Moving here in Seattle, it was a lot easier. There were a lot more families. I One of the companies I worked for was Nordstrom. And there were a lot of families and a lot of parents. It was much easier. But still, something about that wasn't right for me. I eventually knew that I would start something. I just didn't know what that something was.
0: It's funny. When I describe you know, a, a retail consultant, retail consultant means a lot of different things to yeah. a lot of different people. Uh, and retail is just this huge, ambiguous thing. Uh, how do you fit in into that world?
2: It is huge and ambiguous. Yeah. <laughs> it's a. Yeah. Like when someone tells me they're a product manager or a project manager, what does that mean in your space? It's so big and vague. The way I describe it, I describe it in one of two ways. The first more pop culture way is asking people if they've seen the show The Profit. And The Profit is a show not far from Shark Tank where um, one particular investor meets businesses and really helps underperforming businesses. Mm. And he does that with his knowledge, but also equity in the business. And he takes controlling ownership. Mm. And he's a serial investor with money, with a strong retail background. And when I liken the work I do to the profit, it's because people understand that he has a retail expertise and he goes in and helps underperforming businesses. But he does it in such a different way. So that's my pop culture reference. Mm. Okay. My other reference is I come in like an advisory partner. What I'm able to bring is my expertise and understanding how the grass lies. If the wind blows this way, I bet you with 90% accuracy, this thing is going to happen. So how do you want to respond to it? And so I can take input from a couple of different current elements And what I know to be true in the industry, and I'm using air quotes, what I know to be true in (laughs) the industry, um, and make recommendations on how to approach it. And so a lot of my work is around solidifying current operational practices, identifying the blind spots, and teaching people how to think critically about running a retail business.
0: What are the sizes of the businesses you typically work with?
2: They're typically single store or two store type locations. Mm Frequently co-owners, have been in business anywhere from 8 to 15 years.
0: One of my observations, having moved here and thinking about the show, like what what is the difference? And I'm going to ask you this question in a second. What is the difference between retail in Seattle versus retail anywhere else? And you especially having a lot of one-on-one experience with people. Is retail in Seattle more personal than other places?
2: No. And I have felt this for a very long time. And one of my guiding, motivating principles is this belief that retail in Seattle has a lot more in common with retail in Miami and bolder than they don't. And what's come up over the last however many years that the shop local movement has been really strong is that cities bind together so tightly to rally local money and keep local money in their economy that they've closed off doors to learn from other people in other cities. And as I've had conversations and I've had multiple conversations with the businesses throughout the US of different sizes, I've worked at retail companies throughout the U.S. of different sizes. There's more in common than there isn't. And there just needs to be opportunities for these businesses to connect.
0: Is that a customer influence in that that's what they think their customers want is for their values to be completely insular to the Pacific Northwest? Or is that, in your experience, the owner's influence on what they offer? That they want their money and their values to be specifically within the Pacific Northwest.
1: Or do you think that that mentality is a more national, cultural idea of wanting to support local businesses and so that everybody in all these cities of a certain size and a certain persuasion all think that way? Or is it on the other side of the coin more that everybody might have different endpoints for where they see their success, but a significant number of people are just trying to get to that point of, hey... We're doing well. We're getting by. Most of our customers are local, but that's not really the biggest goal It's just that we're just getting by and we're being successful.
2: I think it's the former that we're trying to understand where we are in relationship to other. Always, right? Identity requires guardrails. And the easiest way to identify that is neighborhood, especially when it comes to commerce. With economic downturn, with production, going overseas shopping within neighborhood became really, really easy to market, um, to align on values. So pockets are shopping within neighborhoods. I mean, one of the most brilliant things that American Express did was put a lot of effort around this national shop local movement. Just that alone says you want your neighborhood, you love your neighborhood, you have neighborhood pride, and um, how you interact with each other to try and create community.
1: So it's harnessing a a nationwide mentality of supporting localized businesses, which is almost ironic, but but also brilliant. It still seems next
0: level here to me. It's still like, for instance, I, I bought a bike. And I didn't get a local bike. I hadn't been here long enough to know oh, how important for that shame. was. shame. Exactly. And I've been in and lived in other cities that had shop local movements and felt strongly about it. But you can't ride a non local bike in Seattle and not be faced with that from someone else, even Austin or <laughs> Denver or I don't know if I'm not riding a Marin in San Francisco, I'm probably not going to hear about it. But if I'm not riding a Kona here, I'm not even going to say what bike I bought because I'm going to like eat too much crow See, for I, it.
1: I can't read. Re- I'm not up on. Uh,
0: <laughs> but like, just so like everyone that. listening knows, Rachel made a, a look when I said I didn't buy a local <laughs> bike and she's still making a look.
1: I made a look, but then I was like, I don't even know what the local brand would have been. I, <laughs> I don't know bikes. I don't know. So you're off the hook. Oh, but good. But what I'm wondering, though, is in terms of sustaining a business, like. We can all talk big about being localized or being a global business or whatever it is that your business wants to be. Is it possible to have a successful business that sustains itself with a kind of micro business mentality? I guess I'm wondering how much how much of this is just talking and how much is, well, if you really want to pull it off, what do you really need to do to make it happen?
2: I love that question. I think the shop local movement is really aspirational and we need to aspire to something. We need to aspire to a commercial experience and interaction between merchant and customer. But without acknowledging the way that we shop and without acknowledging how that's changed, we are leaving ourselves in the dark and growing this bigger hole and you know, widening the gap between the way people shop now and shop local. And so the analogy I like to give is, think about the last time you hosted a party at your house you know you have receipts from six or seven different stores that sold you food, beverage, and consumable supplies because that's how it is. You might buy plates and stuff from Costco and wine from the wine store and the best mixed nuts from Trader Joe's and Mm -hmm. stuff from your CSA box and stuff from Whole Foods and some stuff from Fred Meyer. That's just the way people shop. Mm -hmm. And if we don't acknowledge that, the aspiration of shop local can make people feel like they are less than or Mm -hmm. that they're not supporting their community enough
1: right so there's a psychological component to how much you're willing to admit that you shopped locally versus you accidentally had to go to a bigger retailer who might be based somewhere else right (laughs) and so shame
0: my car just took me there i don't know what happened
1: that (laughs) damn tesla
0: just (laughs) sorry
1: says Charles who will never let any other car drive him other than himself.
0: (laughs) I let Jeff drive my Mustang once though. Oh. Just saying it happened. He was properly shocked when I handed him the keys.
1: (laughs) Charles is anti-self-driving cars.
0: Not anti-self-driving. If everyone else wants to drive self-driving cars and drive the speed limit, I will gladly pass them.
1: Yes, that's fine. (laughs) I'm gonna be drinking wine in the back of my (laughs) self-driving car and you can pass me.
2: As I reach out to businesses outside of Seattle, the common thread is you have to have an online presence. You have to. It's the expectation. And in Seattle, that expectation is even higher because of who we're surrounded by and who influences us. So I don't know any business. Well, I know a few. Most businesses are thinking through how do I service my neighborhood and how do I service throughout the U.S.? They have that mentality for a variety of different reasons, but there are a few that still run their business with paper and pencil. They still have binders and manual processes. They service a very local neighborhood store and they are doing great. So there's room for all of it.
1: Is there a niche for marketing your business, your online store as saying, we are this local business that sells and produces and everything locally, but you can buy from us globally on our website. Is that a thing? that promotes sales by saying that you have this whole, oh, we're all made in Seattle, we're, you know, blah, 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 all those things, is, is that actually a thing that you can market to promote your sales globally,
2: or or do people see through that? I can see that you would do that if you are uh, servicing a tourist or you're a tourist destination. I think the other thing that's good for us to to distinguish is locally made and shopping local. There are plenty of stores that are neighborhood, brick-and-mortar, Main Street-style stores that buy from all over the US mm-hmm. and buy from all over the world and does not make them less than or not locally legitimate. So that there's even a lot of nuance within what does it mean to shop local. In Seattle, shopping local means going to Costco and buying your coffee from Starbucks because mm-hmm. that's, yep. that's what it is in Seattle.
0: What's yeah. been the biggest sea change for, re- for small retailers in Seattle over that time? Obviously, some things have changed.
2: A lot of things yeah. have changed. There's not one. I would say there are three, okay. and they influence and have shaped what's come up in the last 11 years. The first has been international changes in customer expectation. The expectation of customers is much higher now. It's to the level of hospitality. Right. Number one. Right. Uh, number two, the rising cost of real estate has changed who can play the game
0: mm-hmm.
2: and who can't, or how that game is played how you enter the market. Number three, the uh, talent pool that's drawn here and who's able to work and live here. So when we think about retail, some people might think of a retail employee who works in a store, who punches in a time card and provides face-to-face customer service, or they may be thinking of someone who sits at a computer and manages an open-to-buy. More people are in the first bucket, just how that works. And it is cost prohibitive to be working in that space and the people that work in that space love it and they don't know what else they would do if you are a career retailer. I guess the fourth thing would be with this different talent pool in the last 11 years, the talent pool has changed as the industry has changed, as service has changed, as retail has changed, how we train that talent pool is different Mm -hmm. and uh, we're lacking some training to make these niche retailers Really, really successful.
0: Yeah. Can you talk more about the hospitality aspect? I find that super, super interesting. <gasps> yeah. Yeah. I have a lot of yeah. First of all, so hospitality, again, that's another thing that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. When you're talking about hospitality, what specifically are you referring to?
2: Concierge level care. White glove level care. That's what I'm talking about. The expectation went from the customer's always right to I want what I want when I want it
0: mm-hmm.
2: to all of that. Plus, I might actually be secretly shopping someone else
0: <laughs> Right.
2: <laughs> um, to now I actually want to be entertained yep. in this entire process where shopping is interchangeable with going to a movie or um, having a coffee date with a friend.
0: So experience in that case means a lot more than it used to, or has it always meant a lot here in Seattle? Because once upon a time experience, it was just like, we're just going to put our stuff out there. Even for Nordstrom's, for example, when they were just selling shoes, the experience of going to Nordstrom was more about the people, not the color of the walls and the decor. And that came later.
2: That is a great analogy. It, really pinned on the excellence of the associate. It was all in support of we are a corporate organization that supports the associate on the sales floor servicing the customer. Whatever we need to do to make that single singular person successful, we will do that thing. And now that's not enough. Because with the rise of awareness, Mm -hmm. and a rise of personal expectation on a customer. The demands on a sales associate sometimes are out of scope. They may never, you know what I'm saying? They may Uh never have the resources. They may never have the knowledge. They may never have the capability to extend themselves the way that service expectations are asking them to extend themselves.
0: What's one of those ways that's out of scope?
2: I'm not entirely convinced that this is going to look good on me. So can you come (laughs) and, here's an example. Virtual fitting rooms, virtual try-on rooms. I'm not entirely convinced. Uh, How can we mock up this experience for me? It requires so much knowledge. So that's a challenge. But where I think the opportunity is for a small business is so much can be solved with conversation. So much can be solved with eye contact. So much can be solved with humility and humanity. And that's where the advantage is and where there's a whole in training for employees. There's a hole in resources for small business owners to teach their team how to do that thing when the pressure is on being online, having advanced user interfaces, collecting all the data, all the, the data. I, so I, I have a question. How easy is it
1: to get into the retail market? Can you still, you know, farmer's market booth your way into eventually having a retail street presence? Or is that no longer
2: a thing. Yes, I love it. And I love that you asked that question. There is this return of pop-ups and pop-ins in a really, really different way. And pop-ups and pop-ins used to be about the easy way to have a physical presence. And now the way that they're being used is much different. They're really about experience and creating brand that drives loyalty. People are able to create destinations in a lot of sense if they're able to connect. So It's easier, but the formula keeps changing for success. um, And the formula keeps changing for success. But there are so many more ways you can do it now. We're really good at street markets. I mean, so, so good at consistent street markets. And we're also really good at street fairs. We're really good at craft fairs. We're really good at hosting within our commercial spaces. Uh, We have lots of opportunity to create websites. People are doing it a lot. And all the time, because the barriers to entry are so low, threshold for success keeps rising. So that's the challenge is how do you empower those who have already entered to rise to the level that they need to be successful? Mm -hmm.
1: That makes sense. It's easy to get in, but it's it's, it's difficult to to succeed.
2: Yeah. Um, What is fantastic right now about where we're at in retail is customers are game for whatever experience you want to put in front of them, if you put that experience in front of them really, really well, they're down. So if you can figure out a formula that works for you as a business owner, that's profitable, that works for the customer, you can deliver See, in a lot of creative ways.
1: A thing we've been thinking about in terms of because we like to design retail spaces. And so this idea of integrating situations for social media engagement within your retail space. Is it really a thing that if you design your retail space in a way that people are going to come in in there and some of them will buy stuff and some of them won't but if you create it in a way that enough people are like oh i'm just going to take a selfie here in front of this display that we've created the fact that those particular people might not have purchased anything doesn't matter because they're basically promoting your business through the fact that they are taking selfies in your business and sharing them on social media your business is, in fact, then promoted and it will drive
2: sales. Is that really a thing? Is it's that a thing? thing? It's totally <laughs> a thing. And I think, you know, the metric sign would say, yes, This social share is important. But really what's important is this feeling. It's the feeling that is most important. Because when people have the feelings, they don't mm-hmm. stop talking about them. That's the piece that once you are ready to put something in front of them to sell, that they want to buy, they'll buy it. So I love this thought that you can have a retail space and you are not asking every single customer that that walks in to buy something, that you're asking them to engage with the brand and you're getting to know that brand. Like that is really sexy. There are all kinds of models around something like that. One of my favorite is Project Object. They have a space. It is not quite consignment and it's not quite wholesale with a little bit of marketing. And so it's really interesting because they're able to have a brand message and feature makers and get people like me really invested in it. And I have not bought one thing, but I'm way into them. Um, And so I think that magical formula that they have and that magical formula you're talking about, people are down. They wanna see a few different things that isn't always about speed to market.
1: Right. And Magical
2: is. is the perfect word that you're using because this
1: idea of getting people magically invested and emotionally invested in your space, in your retail space more than anything in this context, is that's that magic thing that will down the line promote your sales. But in the meantime, you don't even care because if they're just happy to be there and happy to experience your space. That gets into a lot of stuff that, Charles, you like to think about about creating a third space because we talk about... Third spaces and what that means. And more often than not, third spaces are not purely retail spaces. They're places that we hang out and we drink coffee and this and that. They're not necessarily, like you're selling coffee and other things, but you're not selling merchandise as much, right? Yeah, it goes back to what what Chris was saying
0: about feelings being so incredibly important and about hospitality being uh, now one of the biggest barriers to a sale people need to be put in a place where they want the thing you're selling it isn't as good as at, at just putting but if the you, things out there
1: if you like the idea of being there right, right. like you don't you aren't going to buy anything right now but you keep coming back to it because you like what you feel like when you're there and you like the selfies that you take when you're there and it makes you feel good about being right. there eventually Either Even if you never do buy anything, you, your per social promotion of it is going to make other people buy stuff there.
0: Right. So my biggest, my biggest question out of what Rachel just said is where does design enter into that? If the trajectory one trajectory is we're uh, four poles in a tent on day one at a farmer's market and then a few months later we're a pop-up shop with the idea that we're gonna be brick and mortar at some point, but maybe we do a portion of our sales online. When does design enter into making a big difference in creating that narrative versus just being this plucky startup that yeah. just put a couple of widgets yeah. out on a table?
2: So um, I like to think about that question in context of a fourth place. Mm-hmm. Right, where you're doing that in a retail setting, where mostly what you're doing is selling widgets, by and large. And Apple is like the really great example of that. That plucky startup to that feeling, um, I'm starting to refer to my clients and refer to retailers as retail brands because you don't need four walls. Four walls is amazing. And four walls is what you need for the human interaction. Mm-hmm. But if you can create the brand sentiment and the brand behaviors, and the belonging, you've got a retail brand.
0: Belonging's a really good word. I
2: think belonging,
0: I think community.
2: yeah, Yeah, that is really all that people want. And you know from my events that have had numerous names. They went from found and gathered to after close. People will go to the most inconvenient places at the most inconvenient times during the inconvenient like week of the year if they feel like they belong. Right. And those have been my social experiments around what does it mean to create a retail brand? And then I might be asking you to buy something. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And then can I put right. a product in front of this group of people because they already feel like they belong and the product is just the certificate.
0: It's that memento of the experience. Right. It's not a thing you went that drew you to that place.
2: And, yeah. and that's not to say that we'll go to the ends of the earth to create belonging and not sell a single thing. It doesn't mean that we will be omnipresent, but it's that level of expectation that we need to convert the sale and do it in a way with a lot of authenticity and a lot of self-fulfilling inspiration, right? You need to (laughs) keep watering that plant. Um, And so that's really what retail owners want to do is also have a community that they belong to. So I think that's that thing.
0: Absolutely. How aware, so we're all, we're all customers. Uh, how aware are we of that process taking place? Is it a success if we're unaware? Or is it rather, is it only a success if we're unaware? If we become aware of it, does it change the story? How do you manage that line?
2: I think awareness allows people to feel like they're unsanctioned ambassadors. And it feels real good to be an insider.
0: Right. Because you're, you're invited, right? feels yeah. so
2: good to be thought of. Right. It can be really successful if you're unaware, but what tends to happen for consumers that are unaware is they are more susceptible to outside influences that change their spending habits. Promotions, sales, competition, proximity, delivery. When you are more of an insider, those things matter less. And there's always gonna be the bargain shopper. it's funny, yeah. And there's always gonna be the most loyal, but I'm talking about the middle.
0: Keep thinking of loyalty programs as almost being the opposite in some way. Like you are expected to hold up your part of the bargain with a loyalty program. I'm talking about your baseline loyalty program. Buy nine things or you get a tenth for free. Not like something more involved than that. Whereas this is kind of, maybe I'm not reading it right. This seems like the opposite of that. It's almost like your seller, is your shop owner is loyal to you, not vice versa. Right.
2: Yes. That's what I like to cultivate, Mm -hmm. Uh, common loyalty programs that we're part of, the card in -hmm. our wallet, thing on your key fob. Those are meant to provide an incent bounce back. Or that's just the price and everyone else is paying a premium.
0: <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought about it that way. <laughs> uh, that is he how gets rid some, of all of his cards <laughs> That's wallet. how
2: some of it works. <laughs> is right. if you're not a member, you actually pay more. Right. And the margins are higher if you're not a member.
1: I'm just thinking specifically of a coffee shop that I like to go to down in, in Ballard. They do have punch cards. Everybody has punch cards, right? But but they also offer their to-go mugs that you can buy. And it's like, well, we already have to go mugs because well, so we live we Seattle. live in Seattle. Seattle. <laughs> yeah, <it's>, yeah. <laughs> and so yeah, And so, and so uh, we always bring those. Yeah, but but yeah. but one of the things that that is interestingly the most successful marketing mm-hmm. or advertising tool for these types of companies is that they also are this the shop recently started selling, you know, branded little canvas bags that you carry with you because my husband and I were, we obsessed with carrying our own bags everywhere. Right. And so they've created these bags that give this like authority of like, Oh, I'm carrying this bag from this particular coffee shop and it's this like one place and I love it and blah, blah, blah. And we like the bags from that shop because we like the shop. And so when we're just like reaching in our little bag of bags to go somewhere, we prioritize the ones from the places that we really respect, that they provide that, and then that they've instilled in us that desire to be so loyal as to walk around with their logo hanging off of our arms all the time is huge, right? That kind of organic advertising, is there a way that you can do that more successfully? Have you found that in certain markets, things uh like of all the like boatload of promotional products that like you can just buy the worst things you can put your logo on anything and there's just so many terrible products you can put your logo on because <laughs> there's a catalogs of terrible things what is worth investing in for your branded
2: promotional merchandise so you said the magic word which is badge people like badges physical badges emotional badges <laughs> <laughs> because it shows some level of completion or belonging and literally any badge will do. It could be the loyalty card hanging on your fob. It could be the pen, but that pen is super meaningful when you write, or it could be the bag. When you're creating that true connection, you imbue the badge with meaning. So it could literally be anything. It doesn't matter. And that's why some of these, branded products, all the same thing. We're talking about reusable mugs in two sizes. We're talking about hats, T-shirts, and canvas bags. I mean, you see them everywhere in Seattle. How that brand has imbued the badge in their product, the ones that sell, they've done a good job. And the ones that don't, there's an opportunity for them to define brand behavior. I think it's almost as simple as that. There may be some regional things around um, what do people value in their lifestyle and how they use their product, but any badge will do.
1: Is there a value in assigning exclusivity and access to having that badge on a particular piece of merchandise?
2: For a brand that really likes influencers, that elite influencers, there is absolutely a value. For inclusive brands, there might not be.
0: What advice would you give to an outside, by outside retailer, I mean someone who wants to set up shop in Seattle and is actively engaged in the act of being authentic? What advice would you give them to sell to the native Seattleite market?
2: Mm. Oh, that's a good one. Um, Be able to articulate what your brand of customer service is.
0: What do you mean by brand of customer service?
2: That's the answer I get all the time. (laughs) And that's what we can work on. (laughs) So what tends to happen is the reason why we started a business stays as a... set of descriptive words, and they never get operationalized as verbs. And when we can use our words as verbs to guide how we make all of the choices, and I'm not talking about the big gigantic buys, um, I'm not talking about how you are sorting, but I'm also talking about who you're hiring when you send that email, how you spend your last $100, how you ask the question, how you diffuse tension on a sales floor, that's branded service. There are all of these books out there about general service. There are Seattle customer expectations on service, but a particular brand needs to understand how they serve. And the danger that I'm seeing right now is the rising response in customer's not always right. Mm -hmm. It is climbing higher and higher. Yelp reviews are drastically impacting businesses because of this disparity between how are we training the sales for and how are we shaping etiquette of customers? There's an etiquette and we're ignoring that. There's an etiquette to shopping. We keep forgetting and there's no one to help shape that. And so if you have really strong brand filters and brand approaches, you can shape behavior. Just go into any IKEA. They're shaping behavior all day. Sure. Oh yeah. Um, And they're doing it really, really well. And they're doing it genuinely. And people are there willingly and they're self-selecting, but we're not as retailers. How do you shape that in a way that isn't my way or the highway? That's part educational in your specific tone and voice. Did I answer your question? Absolutely. Okay. I'm
0: Absolutely. I mean, I uh, luckily I'm not one of those people. <laughs> I don't have to deal with that. I'm like, that sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> oh man. Because <laughs> that we're a we're a finicky bunch, I've learned. Well, but maybe not. This is actually goes back to my very first question. Are Seattleites, for lack of a better word, tough customers? Or is it really just, it's hard all over?
2: It's hard all over. It really is. There are some ways in which we're unique snowflakes, Mm -hmm. but the boom is happening everywhere. It's happening in major cities all across the US. Mm -hmm. People are moving from all over to be everywhere. It's everywhere.
0: Yeah, it's funny. I was just reading an article about where people who were leaving Larger cities are going and they're going to medium sized cities. And then, of course, medium sized cities are becoming large cities. And the same, it's just the same problems. You're only buying yourself a couple years of evolution and then you're going to end up right where you were. It's really fascinating. Yeah. So, I think yeah. to
2: answer your question, It's the same everywhere. What makes the Seattle flavor unique is who can actually afford to live and work here as a retail employee. It's
0: changing. That is changing really drastically.
2: It's impacting a lot of industries in Seattle Mm -hmm. and it's becoming self fulfilling Mm -hmm. and making it more challenging and more challenging and more challenging.
0: And it's funny as businesses start to, you know, put mandatory tipping in and raise their prices so that they can make sure everything is locally sourced and make sure that they're being honest with ingredients, et cetera, et cetera. Those prices rise Mm -hmm. out of the reach of the very people they're trying to serve, not their fault. It seems like no matter what you do, all the prices go up. There's no magic solution to that, it seems like. And retailers must be so frustrated. They are. Yeah.
2: They are. Yeah. And in addition to that, um, the laws are becoming more employee favorable, which is great. Right. They're becoming more progressive and favorable for employees. And it's requiring retailers to get really creative about how they operate their business. Customers are not as price sensitive as we think they are. They mm-hmm. go along for the ride to a certain percentage if you show that there's value. Right. And that value comes from the this human thing yeah. that is belonging.
0: It's very, very well said. That's a perfect note to end on because we're just about out of time. Thank you so much for coming on.
2: Thank you. It's been so fun. I love talking about <laughs> this. So thank you.
0: And thank you so much for joining us. Our next night school event will be right around the corner. So keep a lookout on our website for that. It will be held at Borden Vellum on 15th Avenue on Capitol Hill. Also, head on over to our website and check out our blog. There's always some super cool stuff being posted there every day. And as always, please stop on by anytime for a chat with us. We would love to have you. Thank you again, and we'll see you all in a few weeks.